This is the Legal Innovators Interview Series, featuring in-house counsel at the forefront of change in their profession, industry, and company. Brought to you by Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney, and Law.com. Now, here's your host, Amy Miller. Welcome to the Legal Innovators Interview Series. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Amy Miller. I'm a shareholder at Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney, and co-head of the firm's DC office. We're very fortunate to welcome a wonderful guest on our show today, Amma Romain. Amma is General Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer at G6 Hospitality. If you don't recognize the name G6, you'll certainly know their biggest brand, Motel 6. The company franchises and operates more than 1,500 properties in 46 different states and internationally in Canada. In her GC role, Amma is focused on building a strong compliance culture, managing a busy litigation portfolio, and like most of corporate America today, responding to some challenging public relations issues. Prior to joining G6, Amma has spent a number of years in the hospitality industry working as inside counsel for Hilton Worldwide and Choice Hotels. She also spent time as general counsel and head of risk management at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory. In addition to her impressive career as a general counsel, Amma is also the co-founder and on the board of directors of an organization called The Initiative, Advancing the Blue and Black Partnership. And I'm very excited to talk to her about that a bit later. Amma, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. It's very good to uh, to talk with you. It's been a while since I've seen you, but it's it's really nice to hear your voice. Likewise. Emma, you've been with G6 Hospitality for a little while now, but you'd already built much of your career in hospitality. Tell us a bit about what attracted you to a career in the hospitality industry. The reality is I fell into hospitality. I was practicing in law firms for seven years. I always knew I wanted to work in-house. Um, So I decided to be a transactional lawyer. And my first in-house opportunity uh, came from Choice Hotels. And the rest, as they say, is history. And when I joined Choice, I was hired to be their senior counsel for commercial contracts. And funny story, when I got the job, I thought, well, this has got to be the easiest job in the world. I mean, like, how many contracts could a company possibly have? And sure enough, though, after after starting, I realized something that I think most in-house lawyers realize. Companies enter into hundreds at a minimum of contracts annually. Um, so it was a much bigger job than I thought it would be, but it really was the foray for me into um, the world of hospitality. And from choice, I went to Hilton when they moved here from L.A. We are a business of people serving people, and it really is just so closely aligned with my personality. And uh, I've really loved every minute of my time in this industry. Well, that's great. I mean, since you began in the industry with Choice Hotels and then eventually with Hilton, can you tell us how the hospitality industry has changed over the years from a legal perspective? Sure. With each hospitality company that I worked at over the last you know, decade plus, I've been in roles of increasing responsibility. In some ways, my understanding, if you will, of the, the enterprise risks that the industry faces today might be slightly different than my understanding of enterprise risks 10 years ago. Um, having said that, I can talk about the, the sort of the current view for sure. But, you know, if I go back in time, you know, I think five, 10 years ago, there was a lot of focus and emphasis on ADA lawsuits. Um, and, you know, when I talk about the hospitality industry. I think it's it's hospitality and similarly situated. 
fast casual um, restaurants also fall in that category. But there were a lot of ADA lawsuits. The Department of Justice was bringing ADA lawsuits. And that was probably one of the bigger risks I think the industry was facing is we're not highly regulated. But over the past couple years, what I can say is that we've seen a trend toward increasing franchisor liability, right, which is a lot of hospitality companies are franchisors, and we license our brand to independent operators um, so that they can run their own businesses. But um, this question of where the line between the franchisor and franchisee ends is one that is continually, I think, under pressure. We've also seen, I think, a proliferation of, in hospitality anyway, human trafficking lawsuits. So this innkeeper liability question, right? Uh, Again, it it pushes and it challenges the franchisor liability concept. But I think it it also starts to raise questions about other types of lawsuits that we're seeing today in general, which is um, social justice related issues, right? So I think this concept of corporate social governance or environmental social governance is really one that companies have to look at no longer as an add-on. I do think that there is an obligation that we're seeing at least being questioned about companies' obligations to the communities where they're operating and to people who they serve. And I think uh, as we think about where we are today in the COVID environment, the, the other place that I feel a lot of stress, if you will, or concern is, you know, we really try very hard as a company um, to do right by our guests and our team members. And we made the decision early on when the pandemic first was unfolding um, that we were going to be true to our mission, and that was to keep the lights on for our customers and for our team members. In so doing, we worked really hard to try to make sure that we put the right protections in place for our business and for our consumers. But this question of, you know, the cottage industry of plaintiff's lawyers that pop up every so often um, is one that I think gives a lot of businesses, you know, some concern right now. The concept of, you know, if you do all that you can and all that seems reasonable in a changing environment, liability protection for businesses is, is an issue that I think we are all really thinking about because on the tail end of the pandemic, you know, there will no doubt be just a cater of lawyers and, and they're already out there, right? Um, and I think if you're flagrantly violating the rules, that's one thing. But I do think there are a lot of companies like ours that are really trying hard to think about the public health concerns and protecting people. And you really just don't want to see the sort of, you know, misuse or abuse of the legal process at the end. So speaking of the COVID-19 pandemic, that certainly has changed the way so many industries operate. But as you point out, the hospitality industry is one that has been hit particularly hard by the virus. Other than what you just mentioned, is there anything else about COVID-19 that has impacted G6 and you specifically in your role as general counsel? As I shared previously, um, you know, we made the decision to stay open during the pandemic. We've had customers the entire time. Like all hospitality companies, obviously, there's a lot of focus on how do you make sure that you are maintaining your property in a way that's safe for consumers and safe for your team members, right? And so we've made huge investments in all of the things that people would expect, right? Cleaning supplies and PPE and and things that would keep people safe. But we've also taken a look at our operating practices and thinking about how often you have housekeepers going into people's rooms, right? Just minimizing the type of contact um, that individuals would have with each other. How do you maintain distance in in your business model? And, and for us, one of the things that's actually been um, sort of an unintended or unexpected benefit of 
the motel model is, you know, for a lot of our hotels, customers can sort of drive up and go into their rooms without having to go into a lobby. And we don't have food service, all of the things, all of the spaces and common spaces in, in hotels that give cause for concern are not a part of our business model. So in some ways that has actually been um, a good thing, but we haven't taken it lightly. I mean, we are constantly thinking about and assessing the risk and uh, making sure that our team members feel comfortable letting us know when they're not feeling well and that they know that they should opt out and call and stay home and not come in and infect others. And we really are doing the best we can. But as I said, the real risk for, for us is just what happens on the back end, right? And none of us can really see that. And we really just try to, to operate um, from the perspective of what's our North Star. And that's let's keep our team members safe. Let's keep our guests safe and hope for the best in the end. Although some legislative assistance would not be a bad thing. So during this current climate, is there any litigation, legislation or regulation, whether it's related to COVID-19 or not, that you're keeping your eyes on right now? Sure. So as I shared before, the litigation that we have seen that we saw certainly before COVID was that we were seeing a lot of human trafficking lawsuits being filed. And the question for us as a company and for us as an industry is really, you know, what's our duty, right? What's our duty to our guests? What's our duty to our team members? And, you know, with with these types of cases, obviously, like, I don't want to talk about the, the civics of of the litigation, but I think what we've tried to do and what I try to do in my role as GC is really think about what's the best business practice for us, right? And what is it that these cases are revealing? And if there are things that we can do to keep our guests more safe, then we will do that. And it's, it sounds simplistic, but we really do try to focus on doing the right thing. And so we've entered into, for example, partnerships with New Friends, New Life, which is a, an, an organization that's focused on um, supporting trafficking victims in the Dallas area. And we also partnered with Truckers Against Trafficking, because as you can imagine, our hotels, our motels are, you know, along the route where truckers drive. And so they're able to, you know, identify signs and signals that might be helpful ultimately to society. So what we've done is we've used this opportunity to really help us be more effective, I should say, not even better as a company, and really just be true to our focus on being a good corporate citizen. And for us, that makes us a stronger company, whatever the litigation outcome is. Can you talk about a recent piece of litigation that you or your team have worked on that was particularly challenging or noteworthy and and what made it so interesting in your opinion? We've had we've had our fair share of of uh, litigation over the past, you know, over the past few years and and most of it is it, it is pretty noteworthy and you know, you can you can look it up online, but what here's what I would say. What we have seen is these uh, social justice cases, right? We are seeing, and I think a lot of companies are going to see an increase in cases where people are really demanding that they be treated fairly and equitably. And our approach, again, is really to take a look at who we are and what we do and really try to identify if there are ways that we can be more effective, right? I think all companies right now are looking at their subconscious and unconscious bias training and things things like that, which ultimately really just make us better as a company and they make us better as a country. So when I think about the litigation and that, that we have, you know, the one good thing I could say is that we've been really aggressively 
um, winding down a lot of our litigation, which has been great. We are really, really focused on, again, just taking care of our guests and taking care of our team members and really making sure that we stand true to our principle, our guiding principles, which are that, you know, we treat people the way we want to be treated. Excellent. That's, that's great to hear. Now to switch gears just a bit, I want to get into a passion project of yours that I'm sure we can all agree is incredibly important right now. A few weeks ago, you were part of starting an organization called The Initiative, Advancing the Blue and Black Partnership. Can you tell us a bit about that organization and why you started it? Sure. So the initiative was founded by a couple Howard Law alum who really we we were thinking about and looking at and experiencing, frankly, everything that was happening in the country. We had a profound sense of sadness, I think, about what was happening. I think for a lot of us, not just the group of us who, who founded this organization, but um, for just, a, I think, a lot of people in the country, there was this sense of powerlessness, right? Like, what can we do? This problem has existed for a really long time, um, yet it continues to exist and in ways that are just so just shocking to the human conscience. And that we we really thought this is a problem that's crying out for a different solution, right? Because it, it does not exist. It does not continue to exist because people haven't spent time and effort trying to solve the problem. We really felt that this was a problem that really warranted taking a step back and asking ourselves, what could we bring to the table that's different? What solution could we bring to the table that might drive change in a way that it hasn't happened thus far? And, you know, our why, as we call it, was just, you know, this strong sense of an obligation, a sense of obligation and duty, frankly, to do something and to do something really impactful. All coming out of Howard, Howard Law, we're resting on a strong history of civil rights and human rights giants, frankly. And we really felt that we had this duty to sort of lean into our social justice training, but use our corporate and commercial experience uh, to really look at the problem using a different set of lenses. Excellent. Um, So in light of George Floyd's killing, there has been a lot of conversation among organizations, businesses, and people about the relationships between police and the communities they serve. What does the initiative offer to those conversations? The most obvious perspective I think that we bring to this conversation is the need for dialogue and communication among the people, among the stakeholders who are not really inclined to want to have this dialogue right now. And we certainly understand uh, as lawyers, as business professionals, but also as black women and as mothers, you know, how people are feeling along that continuum. But having said that, we also recognize that conversation is essential, right? Crucial conversations are necessary and difficult conversations are necessary if we really want to if we want to turn the page on this conversation and if we don't want to keep reliving these moments that we are reliving, we believe that we are one piece of a larger puzzle, right? We're one building block of a larger ecosystem, if you will. And so a lot of people have been tackling this issue in a lot of different ways for many, many, many years. As I said, this problem is hundreds of years old. But what we are saying is, A, let's bring the stakeholders to the table. We're going to bring the communities, the black and brown communities who are feeling over-policed to the table. 
we want to bring the police to the table because we recognize that policing is not inherently bad, right? What's bad is bad policing. And so what we really need to do is elevate the voices within the police department that are progressive, that are leading, that are focused on building communities, that are focused on peacekeeping, and focused on protecting and serving, which is really their call. So that for us is our, that's our North Star, right? Everyone, all stakeholders must be at the table. The other thing that we saw an opportunity to do was to bring what we consider a best-in-class change management approach to this problem, which is using our compliance training, using our understanding of how compliance works in organizations to change culture um, to this problem, right? So again, there are a lot of organizations focused on legislative changes that need to be made, right? We could talk about changes at the federal level, we could talk about changes at the state level, at city, at county levels. But the truth is, as they say, culture eats policy for breakfast or lunch, right? So what we need is to change culture. And compliance, an effective compliance program is one that's focused on that, right? How do you shift behaviors so that you are driving the kind of cultural change that actually then puts a stop to this, right? Because over the years, black men have died, brown men have died, people have died at the hands of police using, using for example, illegal chokeholds. So the law in and of itself is not going to solve this problem. What we really need to do and what we are trying to do is really identify practices that work, practices that are scalable, and look for ways that we can scale our, our solutions and drive change at a cultural level. So we've noticed that several corporations like G6 are supporting this kind of partnership between police and the black community. What other corporations or businesses have stepped up in support and and why does it make sense to do that? So we uh, are incredibly grateful to our sponsors, our our founding sponsors, uh, G6 Hospitality, Motel 6, Microsoft, Kuhn & Nagel, Kava, Zoe's Kitchen, and ECP Investments. You know, these are companies that made the decision to stand with us, even though we were new, um, but we were really being innovative. Uh, We were really looking at this problem and thinking, what can we do to solve this problem in a different way? What what, what, What solution can we bring to the table that has not actually been tried in a scalable way before? And these companies who've partnered with us are businesses that recognize that innovation is necessary to thrive, right? Like we all are well aware of companies that don't exist today, that existed five years ago, 10 years ago, three years ago, businesses that are teetering today, right? Because they've failed to evolve. And really what's happening in policing is that it needs to evolve, right? Like people are losing trust across the country, regardless of race, in the institution. And that's not sustainable. And so we are delighted, frankly, that these businesses have joined with us have lent their resources, right, in terms of uh, human capital and um, cash in order to support our vision for innovating in this space, which is really what needs to happen. So the conversation has certainly changed recently about the role police play in their communities and how these relationships can be positive ones. What is the call to action you're asking of people who want to get involved with the initiative? Simply put, We want everyone to take the initiative. What we are asking everyone to do in this moment is to take a step back 
and really be thoughtful about how we can all be involved. Uh, lawyers in particular, we have incredible networks. We have incredible platforms. We have access to um, a lot of resources that can really help to solve problems like the ones that we're talking about. And we feel really strongly that what each of us needs to do right now is kind of like what we're saying to the police, right? We're saying that check the box compliance programs don't work. So writing a check and checking the box here and saying, okay, now this is going to get solved and sort of funding something that already exists or has existed for a really long time, it may move the needle. But what we would like is for people to think about really investing time and resources in organizations, frankly, like ours, that are really trying to advance the ball and move the needle in a, in a different way. Because frankly, none of these efforts work without support and without resources but it really is so critically important for each of us just to understand where we are, understand what we can do, and then just try to do something because collectively we're just going to be more impactful. So the call to action is take the initiative in the way that's right for you and which can make a difference. Correct. Let me ask you this, Emma, as a black woman and a leader in the legal field, how has your career been shaped differently than some of your other colleagues? So I'll start by saying um, I've been incredibly lucky. And I know that people say that success comes with, you know, it's 99% hard work or 95% hard work. And then there's like, you know, whatever percent luck. But I've been really fortunate to have people along the way in my career who have provided me with good career advice, uh, provided me with good coaching, who've provided feedback, good feedback and tough feedback right, which is essential in order for you to innovate in your own career, right, so that you can be better and uh, do better. But having said that, I, I think in this moment where we're really talking about being really reflective and being very honest, I think it's important to acknowledge that the law is an apprenticeship profession. And when I say that, I mean that we know that you go to law school, you come out, you go into a law firm, you know, for many of us, or any other organization, but truthfully, the way that lawyers get their skills is through working. And the relationships that we build while we're working are frequently what move us along in our careers. And that that's really what propels us in our careers. If you take the law firm model, right, and I'm, I'm talking about firms because that's where I started, because it rewards um, these interpersonal relationships, People who look like me can be disproportionately disadvantaged in the early phases of their journey, right? Which means when we look at people who we're going to just give informal advice and feedback to, we're more likely to give informal advice and feedback to people who look like us, people with whom we're most comfortable. And usually the people with whom we're most comfortable are people who look like us. So I share that to say that I think it's important for all of us to think about disrupting those natural, if you will, processes, right? Like the natural inclination to mentor and groom or even forgive mistakes of those who are most like us and really think about how we can push through this, this model and really reach down or reach across and bring people into the circle and into conversations and into meetings 
that are likely to really be impactful for their careers. Because ultimately, that's how I got to where I am. I didn't get here because everyone who looked like me moved me along. I got here because people who didn't look like me, for whatever reason, felt like they could invest in me and felt like they could trust me and you know, felt comfortable enough to give me feedback that I could take to the next level, right? And move myself to the next level. So in short, I would say that, again, I'm incredibly fortunate in my career, right? To have achieved what I have been able to achieve. But I I think we owe it to our profession to lift as we climb. And I try to do that. And I encourage all of us listening today to do the same. Great. So we're getting close to the end of our show time to wrap things up with what we call in closing. Emma, I'm going to ask you a series of rapid fire questions that are a little on the lighter side. Are you ready? I'm ready. I think. All right, let's go. What's your favorite part about working as a general counsel? I really love two things. One, what I just mentioned. Uh, It gives me a platform. It gives me the opportunity to influence people more broadly. So as an example, a very specific example, I hired someone, I hired an admin actually when I was at Hilton uh, many, many years ago. Uh, And I think it was her second or third job. She was sort of out of college and, and really cutting her teeth. And I didn't hire her because she had really, because she had a lot of administrative experience. I hired her because she had the attitude that I wanted, right? Someone who wanted to jump in and do anything that I asked whether or not it was truly secretarial, because we know that those roles are really evolving and someone who had the aptitude, the aptitude to learn and try new things. And, you know, she joined our team as an admin, probably not even a year later. We, you know, I promoted her. She became a paralegal. After I left the company, she left and she became a paralegal at a law firm and she just started law school. And, you know, those for me, that story is just, it warms my heart. But I think that's the opportunity that I have, right? I have the opportunity to touch lives in my work. I have the opportunity to, you know, drive our company to perform in ways that are good for our team members and our guests, which feels good for me, right? So it allows me to do well and do good. And, you know, I think the general counsel at his or her best is not just providing legal advice, right? We're really shaping the businesses that we're a part of. And if you can do that, that's just so incredibly rewarding. Who has been your role model in your legal career, if anybody? I have so many. I think it's because I'm a Gemini. So it's hard for me to answer that question with any one person. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna mention a lawyer. I mean, I have, you know, like my mom, she's a great role model because she was a working mom and she was not a lawyer, but she, um, she showed me... Uh, keep pushing and keep working, right? Even when there were times when I thought it was absolutely nuts, which I feel right now for people who have much younger kids in this COVID environment. But, you know, when I think about this question, the person who just has been in my heart a lot lately is MLK, Martin Luther King. He was not a lawyer, but there's a way he lived his life. um, And there's a way that he was guided by principle. There is a way that he reached across the aisle all the way back then under such challenging circumstances and worked with people to reach for his vision and to try to realize that what he was envisioning for the country. And the way he operated, to me, it was like a lawyer, right? I mean, if you think about it in retrospect, you know, he was an advocate. So when I think about my role as a lawyer and as a leader, I think it's important for me to remember that I have a voice, 
that it's important for me to use that voice in compelling ways that can really shape our industry and our society. Switching gears a bit, I'm sure you've spent a lot of time in hotels during your career. What is your favorite place to visit and the most unique or interesting place you've stayed? So those are two different questions. My favorite place to visit might now be, I used to say Martha's Vineyard, um, but it might now be Anguilla. It was really hard to get to. It was the last trip that I made just before COVID came to visit. Um, And it was amazing. It was actually idyllic. And as someone who grew up in the Caribbean, I really do have like strong beach preferences. Uh, And I need blue water and I need the right color sand and it has to have the right texture. So I can be very picky about my beaches. And Anguilla was just perfect. Every beach was perfect. And so that favorite place to visit. And I stayed at a really nice Hilton there, actually. So not to my former employer. But the most unique for me was definitely my visit to the UAE. And I absolutely loved it. I stayed in two of the Emirates. I I visited Dubai and Ras Al Khaimah. And I was blown away from the journey, right? So even just flying on Emirates, when they talk about their stewardesses speaking 30 different languages on the plane, you know, for me, those things excite me because I really do um, appreciate and value cultural difference. Um, And I felt like it was celebrated sort of every step of the way, you know, on that journey, which was not something that I expected necessarily. And it is somewhat man-made, so it can feel very contrived. But what I liked is, and not everyone would appreciate the fact that I like this, but I like the fact that all of the conveniences that I want or need were there. But at the same time, I felt like I was in a place that was truly different. Um, And it reminded me in many ways of my, my childhood growing up in Trinidad, in the Caribbean. It just felt sort of like an island. And and it was just very diverse. And I just really um, appreciated that. I really wanted to stay. GC wears a lot of hats in her career. What is the most challenging and most rewarding part of your job? The most challenging is definitely the inability to see around every corner, which is what I want to do, <laughs> right? Um, I, so I want to be able to anticipate the risks that are coming and they keep, you know, particularly in 2020, they keep changing in ways that I can't imagine. So I, I find that to be challenging. And the truth is reputation management more broadly is really what I think the GC role, how I think the role is evolving, right? So it's not important that we simply resolve litigation. It really is important that we think about how litigation might shape or change or impact the reputation of the company in a way that ultimately makes it more difficult for the company to do business, right? That's the bigger picture goal. And our actions, by the time litigation shows up, are viewed in retrospect. So it's so much easier to Monday morning quarterback at that point. But you know, the, the challenge is just making sure that we operate our business in a way that whatever shows up in the end, I feel like we are in a good place to defend the actions that we took. So now that we're limited in what we can do these days, what do you like to do outside of work? <laughs> because it's so hard to figure out what's outside of work. But the thing that has kept me sane during COVID is my Peloton. So I I used to spin before. I would go to spin classes. Uh, I do like the energy of exercise classes, but it's interesting. You spend so much money for those that you probably don't exercise as much because you're like 
you're thinking, oh my gosh, you're spending all of this money to go to classes all the time. So that, that kind of slowed me down a little, but I got my bike literally, it was just, I, I came back from Angola and I was like, I've got to get a bike. Cause I, I, I don't know. I had a f- feeling that this was coming. Right. Um, and what I love about Peloton is it checks so many boxes, you know, notwithstanding all the things I said about checking boxes before, but, um, it's a community, right? I can check in with my friends. Sometimes we can motivate each other. It sometimes gets me out of bed, you know, or gets me to, on the bike just before I go to bed. Um, and I also love the diversity, right, of, of their offerings. So that, that it's not only the bike, which for a long time I was really just riding. Um, but now that I've really branched out and started using all of the various programs, it really is just, it has been good for my soul. It really has. And so this was not supposed to be a, a plug for Peloton, but it is. <laughs> I mean, truly just an example of an innovative company that has really just shaped and changed the way that we think about about exercise right and about self-care and about communities i mean i have you know these communities on facebook of these women who are just like encouraging each other in such positive ways uh, and which is just really something to be celebrated right now well emma thanks so much for coming on the show i really enjoyed speaking with you and learning more about your career and also the fantastic work that you're doing to improve police community relations This will wrap up this edition of the Legal Innovators interview series. Be sure to join us next time. Until then, I'm Amy Miller, shareholder at Buchanan, Ingersoll & Rooney. Thanks for listening.